chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. Uh, uh, as uh, Ross suggested in the, read, in the talk just now, it isn't always the easiest book uh, of the Bible to understand. Uh, if you're a biblical scholar, you will know that uh, parts of the book of Daniel are written in what is called apocalyptic language, um, which is just really another way of saying it's a, a prophetic form of language uh, in a special form. And uh, Andrew will be explaining uh, some of the details to us, but I understand his theme will not be the big question about what the animals are in this story, uh, but there will be other more important features. So Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of the dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised upon one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there was before me another horn, a little one, which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, come out, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me 
was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot, whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns, or ten kings, who will come from this kingdom, after them another king will arise. Different from the earlier ones, he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the most high and oppress his holy people and try and change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the, all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Well, it's a joy to be back uh, speaking to real people. Uh, well, not that you haven't been real people when you've been... Uh, seeing and viewing online but I didn't see you in the same way so it's good to be there and uh, for those that are listening at home or watching at home hope I can see you face to face very soon that would be great if you've ever read the book of Daniel before or have heard anyone talk about it 
you'll probably know that there's quite a lot of strange prophecies and visions within it. And chapter 7 is one of them. Now, if you, you're hoping that I'm going to interpret all the symbols that Daniel saw in his dream so long ago and to map out the fulfilments that have already taken place and maybe to give you a timeline of future fulfilments, then I'm afraid you're going to be very disappointed. Uh, because as we look at uh, Daniel chapter 7 today, I'm certainly not going to attempt to unpick the future, even if that were possible. Uh, and while there might be some benefit in attempting that, it seems to me that this chapter reveals something exciting and useful for us today. Uh, it reveals truths about God, about our world, our nation, our families, and ourselves. And I hope they can help us this week. But it may be useful just for me to set the scene for you a little bit. Daniel is a Jew, uh, you saw that in some of the cartoons earlier, uh, who's been exiled from his homeland and made to serve the occupying Babylonians. Uh, in their capital city, Babylon. He has a dream sent by God in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And Belshazzar was the last Babylonian king. Well, he was almost a king. If you look back into chapter 5, you'll find the last day of Belshazzar's reign is described. So it's, this vision happened before chapter 5. He had a great feast on that day, and while he was feasting, his kingdom was overthrown. He was killed and Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire, took over. As Daniel chapter 4 was about an even earlier king than Belshazzar, uh, then we know that this dream occurs somewhere before the, after the end of chapter 4 and, bef and before the beginning of chapter 5 in a historical sense. Now, from historical records, not from the Bible, we know that Nabonius, Nabonidus, yes, that's right, say, that Nabonidus was king of Babylon in became king of Babylon in 556 BC. But that after a few years, for reasons we don't really understand, he left his son Belshazzar as acting king in Babylon and went off and did something else in his empire. So Daniel uh, probably had this dream in about 553 or thereabouts when um, effectively Belshazzar became crown prince and was acting in his, as king in his father's place. And he grabbed a lot of power to himself, riches for himself, and generally he behaved a bit as a despot. And this seems to be when Daniel had his dream. But anyhow, Daniel's in bed, uh, and he gets this dream. So he grabs hold of his notebook on his, or his bedside cabinet, or more likely in those days, a clay tablet. Um, and he gets out his candle, and he starts jotting down some hieroglyphs, because... Uh, they used hieroglyphs in those days, uh, to record his dream. And what does he tell us? Well, we see the four winds stirred up, the great sea, and various outlandish and fantastic creatures appeared from the sea. Four winds, from north, south, east, and west, and the great sea, uh, they serve to inform us that this is no dream about some local event in uh, Daniel's life, but a dream with worldwide meaning. That's the idea of this um, four winds. Uh, and you'll see later on that the mention is made of uh, this affecting the whole world as well. We may wonder what all these strange details about the forms and behaviour of these creatures are about, what they could possibly mean. But there can't be any doubt 
that the visions are of future kings and kingdoms that had a big that will have a big impact on God's followers. I don't need to guess that because that's what we're told in verse 17 of the chapter. Now, almost all commentators uh, interpret these kings and kingdoms to be first the Babylonians, of whom Belshazzar is the last king. Secondly, the Persians under King Cyrus, who were going to get rid of Belshazzar in due course. And thirdly, Alexander the Great and the Greeks. There's a little bit more discussion about the meaning of the last beast. Some say it's the Seleucids, uh, some think it's the Romans. It doesn't really matter for us today. Yet, like many prophecies in the Bible, there may be a second interpretation, a view of things yet to come, things not yet fulfilled. Uh, The fulfilment of those prophecies in the past doesn't blot out the possibility that there are more fulfilments to be found in the future. There are certainly some similarities, for example, between what's written here and some of the text in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation was certainly written after the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks were long dead and buried. So um, it's likely that there's some future interpretations as well. Sorry, I'll leave you to study those for yourself. So my first point today, though, is this, that there will be powerful earthly authorities. There will be powerful earthly authorities. I think we've got more uh, useful things to spend our time on than looking into the future um, and trying to figure out what's going on here. Uh, We can learn some truths for today. So if you look at verses 4, 5, 6 and 7, you'll see these four bizarre beasts appear. And none of them resembles a mouse. We have a lion or an eagle, we have a bear, we have a leopard, and we have a very powerful animal. There are horns, which in ancient terminology were a symbol of power. And they're getting stuck in, in verses 7, 8, and 11. The overall message is clear. Kingdoms will have great power. This world is going to be full of authorities with great power. We read the news today. We see kingdoms with great power. Uh, In his prayer, uh, David mentioned this grouping of world leaders coming together, people with great power. Uh, They're often personified in single people like President Putin in Russia or Kim Jong-un in North Korea. In some countries, the leaders aren't so self-promoting, but their countries still exert large influence, like China or Qatar, for example. And very often that isn't for good. I'm sure you could list many other kingdoms or kings or leaders. But I want you to notice that all these authorities act under the restrictions that God has imposed upon them. Look at the end of verse 6. The awful fourth beast, the worst of them, was given authority, it says, to rule. It may have looked as though the fourth kingdom grabbed authority by overthrowing the third kingdom. But no, it didn't grab authority, even though it thought it had. It was given authority. And to be given authority to rule, you need to have someone who's going to give it to you. And that's God. What about verse 11? 
The fourth beast is slain at God's command and his authority is destroyed by God. While in verse 12, the other beasts are stripped of their authority by God. God had an authority which first gave and then took away the earthly authority that these leaders had. So the first thing we can notice under this heading is that these earthly authorities have great authority, but only on God's say-so. Whether King John, King, sorry, Kim Jong-un, Boris Johnson, Broxdale Borough Council, the police, your landlord, your teacher, whoever, they only have the authority they have on the say-so of God. It's another reminder of what Jason was speaking to us last week when he was talking about Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Even the bad things that those leaders did, which our leaders do, uh, are under God's sovereign will. His purposes are not going to be thwarted by the bad things that seem to happen. It's God who gives rulers their authority to rule, and it's God who will take away that authority when their time comes. Secondly, under this first heading, I want you to notice that these governments, these authorities, are in general destructive. They're not constructive. The general pattern as we look at the rulers of the world is that they destroy. It's not always true, but it's a general rule. The first four of these beasts had its wings torn off. It was willing to suffer in some way in order to grab hold and keep its authority. The second beast we read was destroying others. It had ribs of someone in its teeth and it ate flesh. The fourth animal in verses 7 and looking down at verse 23 was crushing, devouring and trampling over those under its authority. It's described as terrifying and frightening and very powerful. And the last horn that appears in verse 8 was, according to later on in the chapter, waging war, oppressing God's people and even trying to upset the natural order, the order that God had created. He's very destructive. And the third thing I want you to notice under this heading is that these earthly authorities often particularly have as a target the people of God. They've got it in for God's people, his saints. Sometimes it's conscious and deliberate. Sometimes it's unthinking. At the moment, here we are, meeting together under COVID rules set to us by the authorities over us and they're much more restrictive for places of worship than they are for gatherings of community organizations for example ask joe dunn if you want more information on that and she'll, she'll fill your ear with a lot of hot air about that at the moment uh, sorry now i don't think for a moment that our government is trying to be vindictive to churches i don't think they set out to do that but i strongly suspect that they don't think much of the value of churches. So they're not willing to bend to the pleading of churches in the same way that they're willing to bend to the pleading of other organisations, particularly ones that make money. And churches come off worse. But other times, in tax, attacks on Christians are very, very deliberate by authorities. Christians are picked out for punishment. We say that in China, for example, at the moment. Christians are particularly picked out as they seem to be putting forward a rule and authority, God, which is in conflict with the rule and authority that the government of that country wishes to pursue. And I'm sure you could say that for many other countries in the world at the moment. 
certainly for some Asian countries like Pakistan, for example. And the fourth thing under this heading, as we look at earthly authorities, we should note that, the, that this conflict between earthly authorities and God's people is but a symbol of the cosmic conflict between God and his enemy, Satan. It began at the beginning of this world. If you look back in Genesis chapter 3, you'll find Satan first attacking God's people. Satan deluded Adam and Eve into believing that their authority was, that their own authority would be way better than God's if only they followed Satan. And it quickly led to pain and loss. And this battle between God and Satan won't be over till the end of the world. From chapter 3 at the beginning of the Bible until three chapters from the end of the Bible, this battle between God and Satan is recorded in details small and large. And governments in our day and governments in every age reflect the humans from whom they are drawn. Self-important humans like you and me. Humans who are careless of others like you and like me. Humans who are angry at those who thwart their aims like you and like me. Humans are always trying to get an advantage over others like you and like me. You see, the characteristics that we see in the authorities, which we read about in Daniel 7, the defects we see in authorities in our world, uh, the defects that we see in our families, the defects that we see in our own lives, if we're honest, are all evidences of this battle between good and evil. The characteristics which have warped the authorities of this world from being the good and perfect authorities they're supposed to be into their destructive natures are the same pressures, characteristics that have warped my heart and have warped yours. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said, love your enemies, Satan whispers in our ears, love yourself, you're worth it. And so often we listen to Satan, don't we? And not to God. Well, let me move on to my second main point. We saw, first of all, that the nations, the authorities around us have great authority. But secondly, God has great authority. He has the greatest authority. In verses 9 and 10 of uh, this chapter, we're looking at the Lord God Almighty appears on the scene. There's this horrible, horrible picture of these four animals and these horns, and into it comes God. He breaks into this scene of terror uh, that Daniel's been viewing in his dream. Just look at the nature of God's authority. Here comes God clothed in white, symbols of purity and holiness, the very opposite characteristics of the authorities that have just been described. He's got hair like wool, at that time a symbol of being a very venerable person. The point is that, that in contrast to the authorities illustrated by the four beasts and the horns, he has authority that comes from his very nature. It's not something he's been given or grasped. Uh, it's something he has as of right. And then we see he's got a flaming throne and a fiery river flows from it, symbols of the heat and cleansing of judgment. All the evil in all the authorities of this world will be burnt up and destroyed. And finally, we see that he's surrounded by more attendants than any human being could ever marshal together. A hundred million or more standing ready to do his commands. See how his dignity and order 
contrasts with the rampaging kingdoms we've just read about in earlier verses. And having taken his throne, the court sits down. The record books of the behaviour of all people are brought out and judgment commences. Openly and honestly, in full view of all these crowd of people, justice is dispensed and duly witnessed by millions and millions of people. No one will be able to say it was unfair. No one will be able to say this is a show trial or a kangaroo court. This God who sits at the bench is good and holy. He's not selfish. He's fair. He deals with the problems of the world comprehensively and seriously. His books have recorded every detail. Each action is brought out and examined and judgment is passed. When we look at those terrible authorities pictured by the four beasts of verses 3 to 8, we're very grateful about this, aren't we? We're very grateful about the deliberate and fair trials which end in their condemnation and their destruction. But God's books don't just expose the nature of those kingdoms. These books have every detail of your life and of mine, and every detail of our lives will be exposed at this judgment. The court is in session. The judge is sitting there, a good and perfect and holy judge. And he asks that the court reads out every action to determine whether it was good or bad. His holy standard is there. And our actions and our inactions will be compared with that holy standard. And what will he conclude? That our lives are good and pure, just like his? Or will our lives be found defective? Will some of that destructive nature that's so evident in the first few verses be found in my life or in yours? Will the selfishness, the self-advancement, the intolerance that we see characterised in those verses be found in our lives as well? Well, the answer must be, of course, yes, it will. We read in verse 11 that there's still a rebel even at this time of judgment there is still at least one person who isn't accepting the decision of God's court. Some of the accused will acknowledge that his justice is fair and his punishment just, but there will be others who will rage against his judgment and they're going to be destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire, we read. Rebellion against God will be halted. God has all authority. No amount of defiance, no amount of rebellion against God can ever win. Human institutions have their place and their time, but be in no doubt, God is in control over all that men and women can bring against him. Every human has their place and their time, but similarly, be in no doubt, God is in control over each one of us, and he will deal with all rebellion. All God's enemies will be stripped of their power and destroyed. All evil will be judged. Guilty will be the verdict. And all evil will be done away with. Thirdly, this morning, I want you to see there is another authority which we're introduced to in this chapter. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Father arrived in a majestic and measured way in verse 9, then Christ arrives spectacularly, yet humbly, on the clouds of heaven 
we read in verse 13. Jesus is described here as son of man. Uh, it's an ordinary, yet extraordinary man who arrives on the scene. Daniel doesn't call him by the name of Jesus Christ uh, because, of course, 550 odd years before uh, Christ's nativity, nativity, Daniel didn't even know Christ's actual name. But the Son of Man is a name which Jesus uses 81 times in the New Testament to describe himself. Yes, this is Christ, awesomely, swiftly, irresistibly, yet humbly coming to claim his kingdom as of right. See him enter straight into God's presence in verse 13. He's not held in the court like you and I uh, will be to answer charges against him. No, he doesn't stand there as all the other hundreds of millions of attendants stand. No, he's led in by one or more of those attendants, maybe all of them, into God's presence. He has access right to the court bench. There's no charge he's required to answer. He's perfect in every way. He's given authority in verse 14. He's given glory. He's up there, isn't he? Equally standing with the Ancient of Days, with God himself, with the Most High God. And his kingly reign, we read, is going to be eternal. His kingdom is going to be indestructible. He's given sovereign power, and he's given, we read, and he's given worshippers from every nation and every language. There's no limit to the kind of people in his kingdom. His people are of every type, from every background. There are people like you, and there are people like me, believe it or not. There's no discrimination against a certain group of people. And these people in God's, are these people in God's kingdom good or bad? Well, they're all bad, aren't they? Because everyone's bad apart from him. No one apart from him will have a clean sheet in this court and be able to march straight in. Uh, each one of us is going to be fine when the record books are open. Uh, defects are going to be found. But there is something different about the people that Jesus has. Verse 14 tells us they are worshippers of Jesus. They're bad people, like you and me. But they're worshippers, I trust, like you and me. When their case is heard by the Ancient of Days, when their uh, charges come up before the court, Jesus can step forward and he say, he's one of mine. She's one of my worshippers. They've confessed their sins. They've repented of their many failings and they've become members of my kingdom. By my death in their place, they are made perfect. Now, I know you can't find all that in this verse, in these verses here, but it's the message of the whole second part of the Bible which describes Jesus' arrival on earth as a man, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So Daniel in his dream catches a glimpse of the kingdom of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ, with untold numbers of worshippers who are going to worship him eternally, gloriously, and with great joy. And I trust that you are one of them. But there is one more authority we find in this chapter. So lastly this morning, God's holy people share uh, that authority. Having seen the authority of human kingdoms and humans themselves, having seen the authority of God the Father, and having seen the authority of God the Son, let's look at the authority of God's people. 
of the saints of the Most High. Some of your translations may call them holy people, some saints, it's the same. Those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are described as God's holy people. Holy people of the God Most High. Now, Most High is an ancient name for God the Father that goes right back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis, chapter 14. And the Most High God's holy people are going to possess God's kingdom eternally. As verses 17 and 18 tell us, despite the earthly destructive power of kings and governments typified by these four great beasts who seem to be in control for a while, God's people, Christ's worshippers, are going to receive the kingdom and will possess it forever and ever. Despite what earthly authorities can do, God's people are going to be in charge. Satan is going to be overthrown and God's people... You and I, brother and sister in Christ, if that's what you are, are going to reign eternally. Look at verse 23 again and the following. The worst power that Satan can bring forth will trample and crush the earth. He will insult God to his face. Uh, He will oppress God's people and even try to overthrow the way the world operates. And how like our age that is. When the population of this world is busy damaging its own planet making out that God is dead, using his name as a swear word, and deciding that God's principles, for example, of marriage and gender, are historic monstrosities. And persecuting so many of his followers. Yet although his saints, you and I, are going to suffer for a while, yet God's court is going to strip this ambassador of Satan of his powers. Then all kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the people of the Most High God. You and I will reign uh, over God's kingdom. We'll reign personally, greatly, with sovereign authority over God's kingdom for him. We'll get to decide what happens in God's kingdom, but we'll do it perfectly in accordance with his will. And that will come naturally, and it will give us great satisfaction. How that's going to happen, I've no idea. God doesn't tell us. But he tells us enough to encourage us to live our lives enthusiastically and confidently, looking forward to this enormous promise that he has laid out for us. As many of us struggle struggle to come out of lockdown and to engage with other people, as we realise our need to serve passionately our God and our difficulty about doing that, let's be encouraged in knowing this that God is drawing us on. He has a kingdom of power and authority for us to operate and he's already started work in our hearts uh, to lead us towards that point. Don't be reticent about leaning on God and living your life in a way that pleases him, which honours him. In the face of difficulties, which I know many of you have, Be confident in such a great and mighty God, the Ancient of Days, the Most High God, who's able to cast down the very worst authorities of this world and make them nothing. Trust the one who can and will destroy them and will raise a kingdom of purity and holiness which will last forever, who will judge all evil and get rid of it and who will bring in a kingdom of love and joy and peace and glory 
with the Lord Jesus Christ at its centre? Or aren't you confident how your case will fare when you have to stand before the bar in God's court? No? Then your only hope is to become a true worshipper of God, to confess your rebellion against God's standard of perfection and holiness, to repent and call on Christ in his mercy to accept you as a citizen of his kingdom. Don't delay. Don't delay, for none of us knows when the Most High King will come and appear, declare his court to be in session, and open his record book. Well, may the Lord bless that reading of his word.